The information provided on this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal, financial, or tax advice. I look at everything that I do as if I were called into court as the expert witness, would my explanation suffice? Would I be able to really qualify my choices? Hi, and welcome. This is Web 2.5, a show where we invite operators to share the gritty, behind-the-scenes truth of what it's like to build the organizations of tomorrow while keeping teams paid, compliant, and running today. I'm Grace. Previously, I led operations for early-stage Web3 startups. It was pretty painful, so I want to discuss the challenges that I and many others face in setting up and scaling crypto projects and how we might overcome them. In today's episode, we're talking about why accounting for crypto is so hard and how to get your books in order when there's crypto involved so that you have a clear, accurate picture of your company's financial health and can make your best business decisions without wanting to rip your hair out. I'm really excited to welcome Amber Welch, Senior Manager at Graphite Financial, who leads their crypto accounting practice. Amber, thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. You and I have been working together since late last year on a couple of different clients together. I was actually one of your clients, crypto accounting. It's a very, very tough problem and something that I think a lot of people in crypto really struggle with and are really interested in trying to figure out. So maybe to start from first principles, what does it mean to work in crypto accounting and what is it exactly that you do for your clients? Well, first, thanks for having me. I super appreciate being on. Crypto accounting is pretty much undefined in a lot of the world right now. There's been very little guidance. And as a whole, you know, my job is to help our clients understand what their business is doing from a financial perspective, which sounds really boring, but it's actually not. When you're working in a company and say you're the CEO and you've put some money into it and you're trying to create this outcome, right? You want it to be successful. And maybe in your mind, you have this pathway of what that looks like. My job comes into play in basically taking the burden off of the creative geniuses behind companies and giving them really clear indicators and pathways forward on how to reach the goals that they have come up with. That's kind of it in a nutshell. With cryptocurrency, there's definitely an added layer of complexity just because of there isn't any strong guidance right now. So we're kind of in the wild west of accounting and the stereotypical accountant is very black and white. They don't like the wild west. So I think people like me really come into play because we don't really fit in to the normal accounting box. I'm curious if maybe you can share some examples of the processes that you do have to take on even still as a senior manager and maybe some of the challenges with how to even recognize crypto in the books. So right now, all we have to go on is that the IRS has basically said that cryptocurrency is an intangible asset and we need to treat it with the same impairment processes that we would other intangible assets. So to the layperson, what the heck does that mean? It basically means that cryptocurrency is not treated like cash. So it's not going to be treated like your bank account. It's not going to be treated like the laptop you bought for your business, like a regular fixed asset. A regular fixed asset, usually the way it will show up is you take it and you spread it over the duration of the life it's going to be used. 
That way you're not having to expense this huge purchase right out of the gate. Cryptocurrency is not like that. It's an intangible asset, which basically means the government says it's good forever. So you can't depreciate it. You can't spread it out. And where that gets a little hairy is they also say we have to impair it. So what does impairment mean? Impairment is basically when you look at the value that you booked initially for that asset and you say that it's lost value. Now, anybody who knows anything about cryptocurrency or stock markets or anything similar knows that it could be a blink of an eye and it's changed from $30,000 to $200. I mean, like it's a crazy world. The idea of being able to properly account for that in real time is impossible. Impairment gets tricky because nobody wants an asset that they purchased or that they have acquired for $10,000 to suddenly only be worth $200. And unfortunately, the way the, the laws are written right now, you're supposed to at least test for that impairment on a annual or yearly basis. And then they put this caveat in there that is very gray language and irritates me, to be honest, because what it says is, or if there is a significant change. Well, that's every day in crypto. So the way I've been handling it for my clients is on a monthly basis, I do check for impairment. And unfortunately, if it happens, we have to decrease the value of whatever the cryptocurrency is. Now, what that means in the long term is at some point in time, if you use that or disperse it or swap it or whatever you do with it, if the value has gone up, you're going to have a gain. So in theory, it can wash out. But depending on how long you're holding on to that, that can have significant tax implications for our clients. What is the connection between something like an impairment loss with just an unrealized gain or loss? The IRS guideline right now says, you know, say you have $100 in some cryptocurrency and it gains value. We can't recognize that gain on the books. There are other types of assets or other types of transactions where you're going to recognize the gain or the loss while it's sitting there. And then when you get rid of it, you recognize it as it's realized. With the impairment piece, you can't recognize the gains. You can only recognize the losses. So for example, when I'm looking at a client's cryptocurrency holdings on a monthly basis, the last day of the month, the close price on that last day, if it's lower than the cost basis is for that asset was, I have to write it down. I have to show it as impaired. And like we talked about earlier, it's a little bit gray as to whether I need to be doing that annually or if I really should be doing it more frequently because of the language they used was very loose. I choose to do it monthly simply because until recently, by and far, we've mostly seen gains happening and the impairments were relatively small. So the impairments that we're writing off now on the basis of those assets ultimately are going to end up being gains for my clients unless they're getting rid of them like in the next couple of weeks while things are extra hairy. Got it. So as you are recognizing these impairments on these assets, that becomes the new cost basis for that asset until the next month, until the next month. And then eventually, whatever that amount is in the future, that will be the basis upon which you're calculating any gains or losses should the team or the business decide to sell that asset, swap the asset, do something with it. Yes, but this is where it gets even more tricky. And this is why I really try to educate about the best way to handle it. 
And this is where it's also extra manual because when you're looking at these, the other guideline that we do currently have is we need to treat them for the most part in the US anyway, as a FIFO method, which means the first cryptocurrency coin that you bought needs to be the first one out when you disperse it. Now, if you just had like a bucket of shoes and the first pair that you put in there is also the first pair you got rid of, no big deal, right? They're just shoes. But with cryptocurrency, the value of that initial asset could be different than the one that you purchase next week or next month or any day. So I always maintain a separate ledger from my general books that has the details of each individual purchase and the value of that at the time of purchase. And when I write down those impairments, I do it on the books versus at the individual currency purchase level so that I can track what impairment really truly belongs to which assets in which periods so that when it's dispersed, the gain is as accurate as possible. It is. It is very, very complex. I know not all groups are handling it this way. I tend to be of the mindset, the more complete I can do it now, the safer my clients are and the more protected they are from being the ones that get audited or the ones that have any issues down the line. I know a lot of companies are tending to use the annual impairment method or quarterly or semi-annually. I do it by the period because I think it's more consistent as far as really, truly feeling confident that the first in, first out method, along with whatever the gain or loss is, it's easier to explain in court. I think one of the directors at our company, we were just having just an off the cuff discussion one day. And he said, you know, I look at everything that I do as if I were called into court as the expert witness, would my explanation suffice? Would I be able to really qualify my choices? And so that's the methodology I use beyond just like the auditor's brain that I will always have in how I create my procedure and how we're building it out at our company. It's a very fluid environment right now and constantly trying to think not only what needs to be done, but what would be the most help and what questions hasn't someone answered yet that I can answer now. What are examples of some of those questions that have come to mind for you? I have been in accounting for almost two decades. I spent part of it as an auditor and then the rest has been kind of a disbursement between corporate, internationally, and domestic accounting. So a lot of different industries, a lot of time across a lot of areas. And when I was an auditor, and any auditors that are listening will go, yes, that's exactly how I feel. You're always looking to answer the questions that you know an auditor is going to ask because of the whole intent of being able to have audited financials is to know that they're sound. So when I go through and review my team's work or when I'm looking at my clients' books on a month-to-month basis, I am asking questions for every balance sheet account. I'm looking at it, and if there's variances, I'm asking what caused them, what's happening, not just, yeah, the numbers are there, everything's booked, here you go. It's the same things that the CEO wants to know, and that's typically like, why did this account number change? If something material changed as far as like a bank account was closed, trying to add the right notes onto to different items. And it's funny because of every company I've worked for prior to like doing this that was in the corporate world, 
by the time I exited the company, the everyday individuals would automatically know, like provide Amber a receipt because it's necessary for like they start to say the word audit more and more because of my job is to make sure that even if it's not needed now, that my clients' businesses will be prepared when they need to be audited or if they decide to go public, because that's the goal of every business to grow enough that either audits are necessary or hopefully you're selling it and making bucket loads of money from having this genius idea. So the more that I can do to take that off of the founders to have to worry about, the more value I'm adding to their lives. What is that process like of generating audited financial statements for a transaction or for going public or something like that? Or even maybe some of the teams are wondering, like, if I ever get audited by the IRS, like, what do I need to have? And what does that process look like? Like anything else in the world, if you drive a bright red Porsche down the road and you're going over the speed limit, your risk of being pulled over is higher. Well, to the rest of the government and the finance world, cryptocurrency is the red Porsche driving down the road over the speed limit. (laughs) You know, we're cutting edge. We're involved in something that doesn't have a lot of answers. So they're going to poke and prod where they can. As far as the best way to be prepared, what I tell everybody is pretty much the same. And that is, it's kind of auditor's dirty little secret. And it's the way that you win your audit, even though audits aren't really won. And that is, if you can explain it and have support for it, you're okay. So when in doubt, keep the receipt. Keep a copy of the napkin that you and Joe Schmo wrote your executed document on. (laughs) I mean, whatever that is, keep the support for. Even if it's as simple as you spent $10,000 to invest in some company out of your company's account, and you know what it is, but that's all you have, write it down and put a date and a time. Being able to explain things goes about 80% of the way. And then someone like me can get the other 20% together to provide the answers needed and make sure that you have an audit with no findings. (laughs) What is the broad percentage of companies that you have worked with in the past that have had to go through an audit process and not necessarily because of any nefarious dealings, but just it was part of the process? Auditing is extremely common, especially with startups, because of it's frequently involved with a lot of types of investments. So a lot of investors will request audits to be done, or sometimes you'll see it just because if they're involved with other larger businesses, right? I would say half of my clients probably on a regular basis get a yearly audit. Some of them choose to do it proactively because they know that at some point in time, they're probably going to need it. And it's kind of like investing in your business ahead of having to. So earlier we talked about like what can businesses do to set themselves up for success related to accounting. This is one of those things. I mean, I'm not saying like a company that has zero investors and just barely filed their LLC should be auditing their financials. But when it makes sense, to start that practice, the earlier is definitely better because it's just going to save you the pain of having to create that process and those habits down the line. I think that's good advice. I think that 
generally the mindset is, you know, I'm going to try to wait as long as possible or hope that it never happens, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like the reality is, is that there's a pretty good chance that it is going to happen. So you might as well just prepare for it and expect it. I'd like to circle back to what we were talking about earlier as well, when we were talking about the guidance that we have for how to account for certain crypto assets. And, you know, NFTs are something that have exploded over the last year and are still very, very common in people's portfolios, in companies' portfolios, whatever they may be transacting in. Are NFTs treated differently than something like Ethereum or USDC? Or is it all kind of within the same realm of guidance? Yes and no. So with NFTs, it's a little tricky because unless you're a company that's specifically mining for like Bitcoin and then selling it, you're not really providing a product with your day-to-day transactional cryptocurrency. With NFTs, it's a different story. If you're a company whose sole entire focus is to create these pieces of art or whatever is tied to that specific NFT and sell it as a product, there's revenue there. It's not just a gain on an asset. So on the books, it's still going to be treated as an asset, but you're also going to be seeing revenue tied to it. So it's going to impact the P&L differently. And I think, I think that's an area where there's even less guidance and knowledge than cryptocurrency, if that's even possible. So I think that there's you know a lot of room for error, but I, I think that's a lot of it across the board. And I think that's why it's extremely important that as young companies are looking for firms that want to help them with their accounting measures, that they know the right questions to ask. Accounting is the necessary work that needs to be done in order to be able to answer questions like, what is the tax impact here? What is my cost basis? You know, when should I sell it? What law is this coming out of? When you're going through and you are keeping track of these things, are you also considering the tax impact for the client and communicating with them about that? Or is that an area where you're really coordinating with other experts on your team in the tax arena? So a bit of both. Much like accounting in the tax world, tax accountants are asking, what do you do with these? And there are some that really understand. I'm really fortunate that I work with amazing individuals. I'm actually currently building out a health aspect for my clients. And what that is, is every month I like to send, or as a group, we always send our clients a financial package. It gives them metrics on their business. So as part of that, I'm currently trying to create and build out the financial health of their digital assets, which is their cryptocurrency. So that much like a cash flow or a PL or a balance sheet, they will have a statement of their digital assets. That will be the first clue on kind of where things stand. The second piece is that I want to make sure that I am working with my clients so that they know the ongoing effects that those implications might have. So that when we get to the end of the year, if they've been airdropped some coin that is now worth a bunch of money, they're not going, oh my gosh, we have this huge gain that we had no idea was going to happen when we got rid of that currency a few days later. So You've got to be willing to go with the flow. Once people do start to work in crypto accounting and they're working with crypto clients and working on their books, what are some of the 
kind of main challenges that they face with the limited guidance that is available? I think misunderstanding, misunderstanding what to do. So right now, everything's very manual, which means you can't just open up a program like QuickBooks, put in the information, and it does the work for you. They want to stick a Band-Aid on it, call it good, or they want to upload and import something and be done with it. And that's just not the case with crypto. There are a handful of products out there that help with it, although you know, the offerings are very limited at this point. There's definitely no strong accounting software out there specific to it, which means that you're having to dive in and really dig into each transaction. If you could write a letter or shout out to FASB, which is the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or if you could like change GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles, what are some of the main things at the top of your wish list? I don't like the impairment piece that drives me crazy. I think that they are too narrow-minded, but centralized finance as a whole is. That's why I love DeFi. I'm hoping, I think honestly, and for those of you that don't know, recently FASB decided that they are going to discuss digital assets in their upcoming technical standards. So we're optimistic there's going to be some additional guidance released soon, and I think it will benefit investors. I don't think from an accounting standpoint that we are going to see the same benefits right away. And I say that because every article I've seen where anybody from FASB to GAP to IASB, which is the International Accounting Standards Board, any of these groups that help make these decisions, they really don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They want to stay as far away from it as they can. And I think that's because of even though to all of us involved, this is you know something we've been enmeshed in for ages, to them it's new and it's scary. And the actual quotes that I've seen are too much is going to change, so they don't want to do anything too quickly. So I think honestly, a lot of us that are involved now are going to be the ones that are kind of writing those processes because we're probably going to be the same people that are writing the letters to these boards and requesting specific things and bringing it to their attention. And I think the more of us that have the open discussions and standardize the processes like company to company now, the better luck that we are going to have helping to establish the best opportunity and the best way forward for our clients. So, you know, in finance, it's funny because of a lot of times like a lot of other companies, you have your networking, but everything's kind of close to the chest like a poker game. And I think this is one area where the more we all openly discuss it, the more beneficial it is because there is more than enough to go around. Nobody's going to be left without a piece of the pie that wants to eat the pie. It's just a matter of, are we doing the best we can by the clients we have? I think that's a great sentiment. And I think very much in line with the general philosophies of crypto and blockchain and the open source community as well. What can we each contribute to make this better for everyone at the end of the day? I'm also curious, right, like the pace at which some of these boards will move, of course, it's anticipated that it'll be a little bit on the slower side. In the meantime, you and a lot of the other accounting experts and specialists in the space kind of have to, like I mentioned earlier, sit in this space between what you think it should be and what it actually is. 
And it's very challenging just to give an estimate of, to demonstrate like what that difference in effort is. How much more time do you usually spend on your crypto clients versus on just your normal early stage startup clients? There's a pretty significant difference because of the manual nature. If I have a client that has 10 or 20 transactions of cryptocurrency-based happenings in their books on a monthly basis, I need to account for at least a couple of hours extra in the scope of work. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but for a small company that's starting out, that hourly cost adds up quickly. What are some of the practices that you've been able to implement or some of the things that you've been able to do that really help bring the amount of time and effort that you have to spend on a crypto client more in parity with the amount of effort that it takes to manage just a normal client? We really try to tailor people onto clients in areas that interest them. So the people on my teams that are on my crypto clients are interested in crypto. They actually have an interest in learning about cryptocurrency and how the accounting aspect of it interfolds. Additional education is a huge component because if my team understands what's happening, they're going to be more efficient because they're not going to ask what an RPC note is. They're going to know if someone's spending money on that, where to categorize it. So that really cuts down on a lot of the redundancies in kind of the transactional work. The other piece is, is we've built out standardized processes. So we've created actual processes for how you take this large amount of data, put it into a set format or a supporting document. And we've created all of those transactional things that we talked about, the impairment process, understanding the closed price, all the transactions involved, the deposits, the swaps, every aspect of that we've built into an actual document that our teams can use from client to client. So that has helped quite a bit because of then no matter what client they're on, it's going to be the same process. And then the final piece is we've created these templates for reporting and just kind of the methodologies. And one of the things that I would advise other accounting groups to consider is not just to standardize what they can, but to pick a process and stick with it. There's nothing worse than, I mean, you have to tailor some things to the client, but if at every client you treat that impairment process the same, it's going to become a lot faster. Right now, those are probably the biggest aspects of what we do. And it's a really weird bridge because we're basically bridging from decentralized finance to the normal centralized state so that everything's showing up in the books is fiat. It's like being Jekyll and Hyde, right? You're in one moment, you're this one person, but then you have to put on this other hat to make sure that it fits into that centralized finance box. Working in Web 2.5. <laughs> How would you describe the state of a team's crypto finances when they are onboarding with you? Usually on the great ones who have their pulse on what's happening, We'll get lucky and they'll be tracking it in some format, whether it's an Excel sheet or using a product like Propeller. <laughs> Those are the good ones because of it's a little smoother for us to go back and fill in the gaps and get everything up and going. What are the key data points that you're looking for when you are working with onboarding a client or even just working on a client day to day? You know, like 
how can teams better keep track of the information that's really necessary to make this a better partnership? How many wallets and vaults does a company have? Are we talking about one or two or are we talking about 100 plus? Because that's a reality for a lot of companies. When you and I talked initially, everything was really in order. Like you really kept clean information. So I knew that when I was going to dig into that, it would be easy for me to get what I needed in order to produce what you needed. As far as like best practices, probably the best advice I can give is have an idea of how many wallets and vaults you have, like make a list. Because when I onboard a client, that's the first thing I ask for is a list of that. Once I have that, the details I'm usually looking at, I'm looking at it from a viewpoint of transactionally, kind of like you would view a bank statement. So on my end, I need to get the initial asset because that's how the IRS says we are supposed to treat cryptocurrency at this point in time onto the books. And then I need to worry about all the transactions, all the comings and goings related to those accounts. So the more information I have up front, the easier it is. It's really hard when you start out that way and then you find out later, oh, by the way, we have X, Y, and Z. And you're like, oh, didn't know about that. Thanks. And then you're trying to kind of recreate the will. So the less redundancy we can have from the beginning, the faster and cleaner it all goes. I would highly recommend that they keep documents. And what I mean by that is every convertible note, every executed contract, anything that foundationally affects the business, keep a copy of it in one central location. Even if it's one drive and they're all in that same space mixed up together, having the ability to sort through and get what's needed to compile financials will make onboarding and just getting to where you're going a lot easier. So what would you say are some realistic expectations that teams should have for working with an accounting specialist or any specialist that's working in the crypto space? You know, what will that dynamic or that relationship be like? I think it's it's always a relationship of open discussion, like a really healthy client and consulting group relationship is going to be one where you never hesitate to ask if they can help. I think especially in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, there is even more dialogue. Most of my clients, I would say I become business friends with because there is constant communication. I don't think I ever felt the same level of friendship that I do now when I was an auditor. Typically, I was happy if they just didn't hate me. So now it's nice, you know, I'm happy to share funny stories with my clients. You know, we joke and it makes the work more fun, but it also helps them know that you're truly invested in their company. You and I definitely had that dynamic when we were starting to work together earlier this year. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of working together, honestly, and trying to figure this out together. And I think that it was one of those things where there were so many unknowns. I think I learned a ton through working through this with you. And I think a lot of those lessons I'm definitely taking forward and, you know, trying to share with others or, you know, just try to even productize in some ways. It really goes back to just kind of the 
core of blockchain and DeFi at its basis is this idea of open source sharing, right? Like we're all connected. It's all interconnected. There's no opaque hidden wizard behind the curtain. And I think that very much carries forward in the connections you build because of when companies hire our group, they're not hiring us as outsiders. We're basically intending to be brought in as a piece and part of that company. Even though I technically am paid by my company, I am the controller for, you know, whoever it is that hired me. And I want them to feel that way. I want them to be able to bounce those ideas off me. And even if it's something outside of my normal scope, I usually will know somebody or be happy to make those connections. There's a camaraderie and a friendship that gets built there. And I think that's wonderful. What advice would you give to accountants who are interested in working in Web3 or interested in working in crypto? Well, if you're still a student and you have the opportunity to either add a minor or a second major related to computer science, 100% do that. It gives you a basis of knowledge to start building off of. There is a lot of information out there. So one thing that I do even for my internal teams is I just have a PDF put together with a bunch of links to great podcasts, to intros to Web3, intros to cryptocurrency, YouTube videos. The second is align yourself and network with people who share the same common interests and goals. That can be as easily done as connecting with people like you and I on LinkedIn. I share stuff for people all the time. I make introductions all the time and getting involved. So that's the other thing. There's a lot of young companies that are happy to have help for free or cheap. If you're interested, find a way to make it a hobby or your side hustle. A lot of us start out that way and end up here full time. And then the other component or the other possibility is look for companies that focus on an area and are really actively building this out as a piece of their overall structure. Graphite Financial, where I work, we are fully building out a division and a client portfolio and an entire function of the company specific to this. And we're hiring. And that's not just us. There's a lot of companies like that. So, you know, it takes a little bit of forward thinking, takes a little bit for people that are introverts to put themselves out there, but it's the friendliest bunch of people you'll meet. Everybody wants to help everybody and there's so much opportunity. That's awesome. And I definitely feel that way as well about just generally working in the crypto industry. I've made so many good friends. For anyone who's listening, if they're interested in learning more about Graphite, where can they go to check out more information? So we have a website, graphitefinancial.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And you can also send me an email. I'll help you make introductions. I'm always happy to expand my network. And my email is amber.welch at graphitefinancial.com. And even if you choose not to come and be part of my team and help kind of define the industry, I would be happy to expand my network and make introductions other places. Well, this was super insightful. Thank you for sharing all of the knowledge that you've built up in crypto accounting and really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. 